Uh, let's do this for a moment. So this uh, message today was actually intended, it was supposed to be preached next Sunday, uh, the Sunday before Thanksgiving. And uh, this Sunday, we were supposed to have Newt Larson with us, and then he was going to be with us then two weeks from now. And so then I was preaching the Sunday before Thanksgiving. And uh, uh, Tuesday around noon, um, Newt called and said, hey, something has come up. And he had John and I on, on conference call, and we talked through it in another church that he's helping and, and just was facing a really bad thing this, this, this day, today. And he asked about uh, switching sermons on Tuesday afternoon. Um, and I said, no problem, man. You know, so, uh, so this is our Thanksgiving sermon preached uh, one week earlier. To which Newt said, he goes, any Sunday is a good Sunday to preach about Thanksgiving. And I'm like, you're just trying to feel the knowledge. Uh, no, he's right, right, every Sunday. So let, let's do this just as we start. Um, let's just let's go back to that theme of encouraging one another. So if you're visiting with us today, you're, just sit there and, and listen, and you're good. All right, but uh, let's just do this. Someone in the row next to you or whatever, just uh, someone around you, just turn to them for a minute and just say, here's one thing I'm thankful for, one thing I'm praising God for this morning. All right? Go, go, go. Amen. Well, this is, this is worship, is it not? This is worship. When we share, when we declare God's goodness, what God has done, this is worship. Um, I, I do, I have a brother actually sitting right down here in the front who has, I think, particular reason to be thankful this morning. Lucas Kimball is down here with his fiance. I, I, yes, Caroline. So welcome, Caroline, first of all. And uh, yeah, congratulations. So uh, this is good. I leaned over to Hannah there. I'm like, that is Caroline, right? I, you, know, you are Caroline, right? Okay, good. <laughs> He's just like, just smile and nod. It's my cousin, but we're just, uh, <laughs> uh, no, okay. Uh, but hey, congratulations. We're excited for you both. So and good to have you here this morning. So um, it is worship though, isn't it? Whenever we lift up God's goodness and faithfulness, proclaiming his goodness. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, and um, one other thing I'm thankful for, I just uh, encourage you to be thankful for as well, I'm, I'm thankful for these guys, I just, and um, Griffin and Tom and, and Luke has jumped in too, and um, just jumping in to lead worship so that I can be free to do this, and that's, uh, I know these guys feel the weight of that, and, uh, and they've been so encouraging, so if you get a chance, thank these guys too for what they're doing, and uh, and helping, and Pete too. Uh, he's been taking over some of the teaching on Wednesday nights, and uh, so I'm, I'm thankful for for people who are supporting me in that way, and appreciate it. Uh, Luke seven, and I'm going to start reading in verse uh, 36. So one of the Pharisees asked him, uh, referring to Jesus. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. 
And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Both could not pay, right? Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You ever been pardoned from something? You ever not given what you deserved? Uh, years ago uh, in college, I was uh, dating a girl for a little while from Ohio. Good place. Um, but uh, I was there, and it was over Christmas break, and uh, I had taken her to work and uh, I borrowed her, uh, her dad's car to do it. And drove her to, to work. I think she worked for uh, Elder Beerman. And I uh, drove her to the mall. I was driving back. And there's this, there was this weird intersection exit thing. It's, uh, it was in Finley, Ohio. And uh, we actually go by it uh, still on occasion when we go down to Columbus and cut through there. Um, and I see it. And I still look at it. And I'm like, I'm still not sure exactly what people are supposed to do at that intersection. So I did. And I, I, I did some kind of traffic violation. I wasn't even sure what I did. And, um, and I, I didn't even know I'd done it at first, and then drove through it, and all of a sudden I look in the rearview mirror, and there's, you know, there's the lights. And I'm like, oh, no, are you kidding me? I'm like, you know, here you are, you're trying to impress the family, I'm driving her dad's car, and I'm getting pulled over. And sure enough, the officer comes up, and he's like, license and registration. I pull out the license, and I'm digging through the, I'm like, I don't, and I look, I'm like, I don't know, I don't know where the registration is, and I'm like, this is not, it's getting even worse, he looks at my license, the Delaware license, and he's like, he's like, what are you, and so I explain what I was here for, and he's like, all right, give me a second, he walked back, and he comes back out to the car, and he's like, hey, listen, I get it, he's like, yeah, stayed, and that's a confusing place, and it's Christmas time, and I think he made some comment about, and you need to, you know, you can't go back and tell her dad. <laughs> so I'm like, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I've been pardoned. I deserved, I did, I did legitimately violate whatever that law was there, but I was pardoned, I was freed, right? And this is what the point of this passage is in Luke 7, that we are pardons. 
not getting what we deserve. This is a big theme in Luke's gospel. And I think one of the things in Luke's, in Luke's mind as he's done this, because there's a lot of uh, references that would make me think this. Um, I think Luke has in his mind this concept of jubilee. If you, if you look back in, in Leviticus chapter 25, uh, jubilee was installed uh, by God to the, to the Jews in the law. And jubilee was an event that would happen every 50 years when all debts would be canceled. Uh, land debts, loan debts, slavery debts. If someone slowed themselves in slavery, all of these debts would be canceled. And let me just read to you, just for a point of reference, from Leviticus 25, uh, verse 10. It says this, uh, You shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat of the produce of the field. And if you flip over, the whole chapter addresses what takes place there in jubilee. Um, In chapter uh, 25, verse 39, he addresses the slavery aspect of it. And I just closed my Bible without the bookmark in it, and now I have to go back and find Leviticus. Um... It's not one of those books that the Bible naturally falls open to. Um, Leviticus 20, there we go. Um, So you go on later in the chapter, verse 39. It says, If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired servant and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. So Jubilee, it's this concept of the canceling of debts, of freedom being granted. And you look throughout Luke's gospel, and he echoes this theme all over the place, this, this theme of forgiveness and of a release throughout the gospel. And I, and I think he has this in his mind indebtedness being canceled. If your bank calls you tomorrow, says, hey, listen, I know you got an outstanding mortgage, it's canceled, it's done, it's over. I think, would there be people in this room be a little bit more, a little excited about that? Like, seriously, no more mortgage? You know what I can do with that money? Like, we can go on a cool vacation, Um, you know, I can take my kids to the real zoo instead of PetSmart, Uh, you know, like, (laughs) <laughs> we never did that to you guys when we were like, yeah, we did. you guys remember like hey let's go look at the animals at PetSmart daddy I thought we were going to this is the zoo <laughs> where are the elephants oh, they're feeding them in the back they're, you know, they're off exhibits right I don't know um, no but if that was cancelled like how cool would that be like we're free like I could do so much now right indebtedness being cancelled that's, that's what he's getting at all throughout his gospel, that debt has been canceled, the debt that we owe to God. Luke emphasizes sinners all throughout the gospel. The fact that Jesus interacts with sinners and Jesus frees sinners from the debt that they owe a holy God. This is the gospel that you must preach to yourself. This is the reality in which you must live. If you are in Jesus Christ, you need to understand that your vast debt has been canceled. And if you do, it will have a profound impact on your life. Luke's gospel up to this point gives us an amazing picture of who Christ is. And if you think back to Luke chapter 1, the very beginning, he writes it 
to this man, Theophilus. Theophilus, I, I'm writing an orderly account. He was a doctor, so probably a pretty smart guy, did his research. I'm writing you this orderly account of, of, of the life of Jesus and what he has done so that you will be convinced of who he is. And he unpacks it. There's this genealogy at the beginning. It's a significant genealogy that, that points to his Davidic roots. He has a right to the throne. He records uh, miracle after miracle, showing us the power and authority of the God-man. And then you get to chapter 7, and chapter 7 is fascinating to me. I think all of these themes come together. If you get to, when you get to chapter 7, you look at the beginning of the chapter, and there's the account of the centurion's servant. Remember the centurion comes to Jesus, could you heal my servant? He's sick. And Jesus is like, let's go to the house and do it. And the centurion says, no, don't bother. You don't need to. I know who you are. Just say the word and he'll be healed. And Jesus is like, that's great faith. And so without stepping foot in the house, without touching the man, without seeing the man, Jesus from a distance pronounces him healed and he's healed. That account is chased with an account of Jesus raising a man from the dead. This is a big one. The authority of Messiah. Victory over death. He can overcome death. So you have a long distance healing. You have a resurrection. And then you get to this interesting interaction with John the Baptist. John sitting in prison, right? And he's discouraged and he's defeated. And he sends his, his servants out. Can you go ask Jesus some questions for me? Can you go ask him, is he really the one we've been waiting for or should we look for another? Because you know, John's like, from where I'm sitting, this isn't going how I thought it was going to go. And they go and they ask Jesus, what's Jesus' response? He says, listen, you go back and you tell John that the dead are raised, that the, the blind receive their sight. And everything that Jesus says is almost verbatim from the prophetic utterances of Isaiah. That's intentional. And John's going to know exactly what Jesus is doing. When they go back and say that, John's going to be like, he is he is proclaiming himself the fulfillment of his prophecies. So you have a long-distance healing. You have a resurrection. You have Luke saying, this is the promised one. He fulfills everything the great prophet Isaiah spoke. Which makes the turn of the chapter then even more fascinating because what comes next is this accusation against Jesus. He eats with Pharisee, or he eats with, with uh, tax collectors and sinners. What a turn in the passage. This is Messiah. Long distance healing, resurrections, fulfillment of prophecy. He eats with sinners and tax collectors. It's an accusation leveled against him. And then there's this account. The Messiah, the one who has the power to do that, sits at tables with sinners loves people, the worst of society. This is where Jesus is hanging out. The point is this, this is the Messiah. Look at all he's done. This chapter demonstrates to us why we should be busting with gratitude towards God this morning. Jesus, God, is the friend of sinners. The combination of power and love demonstrated in this chapter is so compelling that the response of this woman is paradigmatic as the only logical response one should have to Jesus when they fully grasp all that Jesus has done for them. I understand. You understand why she responds this way. This, she knew who Jesus was. And he, he loves me. It's gratitude. That perspective 
He's given me life. That changes everything. We've talked this. I appreciate Dave being honest. Talked about Sue, right? There's many of you sitting here like, this is hard. And it can be really discouraging. But you keep lifting my eyes, my perspective, that I am pardoned. I am forgiven. I am free. No, that doesn't always make me get up and dance with joy, but that gives me something to be grateful for in the midst of the struggles of this life. Thursday night, Hannah was in a car accident. She was on the highway driving to a volleyball game. A deer ran out in front of her car, and she hit it. And um, going at highway speeds, hitting a deer, about 10 things that can go bad, and nine of them are really, really bad. To be honest, I haven't really thought about our car much this weekend. Sitting down at the body shop waiting to see what the insurance company's going to do with it. You know why I haven't thought much about that car? My daughter's sitting down here in the second row today. Just life. I don't care about a car. Some mild annoyances that go with having a car in the body shop, right? Dealing with an insurance company. She's alive. Perspective. A lot of bad things. But I have life. I have pardon. It can cause some of those things to fade away. That's the perspective, right? So where's your perspective this morning? There's reason to be grateful this morning. There's reason to have thanksgiving this morning. You think about the context. I want to set this for you, and then I want to look at these two main characters here. Jesus was invited to dinner at a Pharisee's house. Already this is an interesting context, Right? You know that these are two parties that really didn't get along very well during this time. Obviously, it already had some kind of an interaction, right? Most likely what had happened is Jesus had been teaching. The Pharisee and the woman both had heard him, and they both responded to him. I'm not sure why he invited Jesus to his house. Maybe it was curiosity. Maybe he was impressed. Maybe he wanted to ask more questions. Could have just been a normal gathering of the intellectuals. They, they would do this. They'd get together, all the smart people, and they would talk for a while. And it, it makes sense to invite the visiting rabbi to be part of that. I don't know what his motive was, but they're together at a banquet. Now, the question may be, like, how does a woman like that get into a banquet like this? Right? Well, at that time, it was pretty common. It, it, was, it was open. You could have your banquet, and people from the town could just come, and they could sit around the room, around the wall, and they could watch and listen to the, the conversation around the table. Like, this is totally foreign to us. Right? Imagine like walking into Dick DeVos' house at a dinner party and going, ah, I'm just here to hang out and listen to what you guys are talking about. Like, it probably wouldn't happen. Like, we just don't do that. We're <laughs> walking into your neighbor's house like, hey, I saw the cars out. I'm just going to sit back here in the corner and listen to you guys talk. Like, it's weird to us, but it wasn't weird then. You just did it. And really, the, the issue wasn't her presence. It didn't seem to be odd that she was there. And again, because it was normal, her, her actions were what caused the stir. But it was public, right? And so uh, she's there. They're reclining at table, it says, and it uses that terminology, which means the table would be set here, and they would be reclining kind of on some pillows, kind of laying down, and, and the table's here, the food's here, and they're around, the, and, the, and then the, uh, the feet are facing out. And what that communicates to us is that this was a formal occasion. This was a formal banquet type of occasion where normal uh, norms, social norms would have been practiced. Okay, it would have been common for servants to have been standing around the room to attend to the visitors, washing their feet, other things. Right? The other thing that's significant to understand in this passage is that there were strong cultural expectations in the ancient Near Eastern world, especially in regard to hospitality. Jesus unpacks these in just a minute in his condemnation of Simon the Pharisee. But yeah, it, it would have been very common to wash feet. 
of your guest, or at least provide water. I mean, you didn't even do the basic minimum. It would have been normal to kiss your, your guest in, in greeting. And it, and, it, and it would have been, uh, at least practiced in some cases, of even anointing with, with oil, not all the time. But none of those things happened. I don't know if it was a deliberate insult, but it seems to be. And at the very least, it seems to be at least this air of superiority that the Pharisee had towards his visitor. So there's the context. This was where some of the tension then comes into the room. So you have these characters. You have the woman. She um, is introduced as a woman of the city who was a sinner. She had a reputation. Everyone knew who she was. Everyone knew what she did. She's part of Simon's city, but she's an outcast to the religious community there. We also see very quickly that her life was radically changed by her interaction with Jesus. I changed the, the title. I, I, the form of the sermon I preached about 12, 13 years ago, and, and uh, I had this section titled The Sinful Woman. When I was looking at it today or this week, I was like, I think the better terminology is The Forgiven Woman. I like it, calling her that better because I think it fits, right? Look what she did. She seeks Jesus out to express her love and gratitude. She sought him out, heard where he was going, and she's there, wants to be in his presence, right? She's emotive. She's passionate. She's weeping. She's moved to tears. You get the sense that maybe she wasn't expecting this type of reaction. I don't know. The fact that she doesn't have a towel and it has to resort to using her hair, tells me that, in, in a sense, she may have gotten there and was even more overwhelmed than she thought she was going to be. She's overwhelmed in the presence of Jesus. She's emotive. She's, she's passionate. She may have even been a little bit angry, to be honest with you. She would have been very aware of the cultural expectations as well. And, and she may be sitting there, too, a little bit frustrated because she knows that the Pharisee has slighted his guest. And, and, and she knows what Jesus has meant to her, and she may not be very happy about that, right? She demonstrates humility and devotion by wiping and kissing Jesus' feet. Okay? This is nasty. Fear gross, right? Like, Trey, I love you, man. I'm not going to go down and kiss your feet this morning. I, and you haven't been walking around on dung-filled streets. I mean, it's just, uh, right? It's just, it's, it's gross, right? And you're like, and, and, and they had sandals. They, they didn't have, you know, socks and nice keens or hush puppies. I don't know, whatever, you know. Uh, sandals and the filth of the, sea, the streets, the grime of the streets. And here she is washing and kissing his feet. That's like a well, complete and total humility in her approach to Jesus. She's unguarded. She's unguarded and without reservation. I thought about football fans when I saw this. I was making fun of Derek because he was sitting down here. I, I mean, you watch these football fans, like up at Lambeau Field in December. Right? No shirts on, farve painted on their chests. It's snowing. It's like minus five. And they're like, ah, you know, completely unguarded. Uh, and every fan base has it. This is this guy at Ohio State. He's called the Big Nut. <sighs> You know, he wears these buckeyes around us, who paints his face, and you're like, dude, don't you have anything better? To, he's a 19-year-old kid. Like, and, um, but he's unguarded, just complete, you know. People wear cheese on their heads. Like, what? Um, but this is what she was. She's like this, that fan. The World Cup's coming, right? Check, check out fans at World Cup games. You want to see what unguarded is. Um, passionate. And this is what explains her response 
to Jesus. She bestows an honor on him that had been withheld by Simon. She gives sacrificially. This is probably a very valuable ointment. And, and the response, and we see this in other places in the Gospels where uh, I think it was Judas who responded negatively to an expensive ointment being poured out. And it's like, you do not waste ointment like that on people. So maybe you pour it on their heads, sure, but you don't pour that on people's feet. Like, that's a waste. I remember a few years ago, my, or a long time ago actually, more than a few years, my parents, when I was younger, they went with some, their best friends to, uh, to Bermuda. And uh, me and my sister weren't invited to go. I'm, I'm not mad anymore, but they went to Bermuda, and my mom, they love telling the story. They went to this really high-end restaurant that specialized in prime rib, and um, they got the prime rib, and, and of course, it, Bermuda too, they, they got that, um, it's very proper, they've got kind of that English, British sense to them, so already the, the Americans were kind of a level below anyway, you know, but um, so they go, and they order the prime rib, and it comes out, and my mom's friend Miss Jane, she looks at the waiter and she says, yeah, can, uh, can you get me some ketchup for this? Yeah. <laughs> I said, that, that waiter looked at her with complete and utter disgust. Like, how dare you violate this prime rib with ketchup? <laughs> and said, let us know in no uncertain terms that he was disgusted with the request. It's a waste. Right? And I would tend to agree, probably, right? And it's the same thing. Like, you do not do that. That's a waste. Don't pour that on people's feet. Feets? I got little kids. I can say things like feats. She pours out something necessary for her trade. This alabaster flask most likely was worn around her neck hanging down low, her chest, below her breast, whatever. And, and it was used to help her smell better, and also they would say probably to help sweeten her breath. Things that would be very important for someone who's in the, the trade of prostitution. Right? One commentator says, it doesn't take much imagination to understand how important such a flask would be to a prostitute. She pours it out. She doesn't need it anymore. She doesn't need it anymore. Jesus has transformed who she is. This new person. A new life. She pours it out. God's love and his grace, it pulls us away from our past. It pulls us away from sin. And then we see that she had great faith. And Jesus is very clear here in her evaluation of her that it was her faith that saved her. Her actions were uh, an outpouring of her faith, were evidence of her faith, but it was her faith that saved her. The tense, the terminology, we won't unpack this totally, but in verse 47, the tense of the verb, your sins are forgiven, it indicates a present condition that is based on a past action. Her sin had already been dealt with at some level in the pre- whatever the previous interaction was. Her actions here represent that she knows She's been forgiven. So you contrast her with Simon the Pharisee. He was judgmental, self-righteous, typical of a Pharisee. He had no self-awareness. No self-awareness. And this is the point of Jesus' story. The point of his story isn't that he was less of a sinner than her. 
right? Don't misrepresent Jesus' words when he talks about been forgiven little, you know, sins much. Forget. Don't, don't misrepresent that. That's not Jesus' point. His point is that this man just simply didn't see his sin. In his view, he didn't owe as much because he was so good. Because of his self-righteousness, his felt need for a savior wasn't that great. So he didn't feel the same level of love that the woman felt. I remember uh, years back, Jeff and I were at a Moody Pastors Conference, and actually they were, uh, Samaritan's person was there, and they were talking about this program. And uh, it may have been when it was in, in its infancy, I don't remember exactly the details. But they had a woman there, a girl uh, from an Eastern European country. And uh, she talked about getting a box at one point. And she said, I opened the box, and she said inside was a toothbrush. And there was a teddy bear. And she started crying. She said, I just cried. She goes, a toothbrush. And you know, you're sitting there going, toothbrush. You get that at Walmart. You get a six-pack. You know, right. She said, toothbrush. And she said, I'll never forget. She said, I'd never been given a gift before. Ever. She was an orphan. I'd never been given a gift. And then to have a teddy bear. Right? My kid's got 30 of them. She's like, I've never been given a teddy bear before. And she was overwhelmed by this, right? And we sit there and we're like, that's not a big deal. That's how Simon, that's not a big deal. I'm not much of a sinner. But for her, that girl, she's like, I'd never been given a gift before. And she saw it through that lens and that's what this woman saw. She saw the grace poured out. I've never been given grace before. I've been given something precious, right? Since Jesus couldn't do anything for Simon because of his view of himself, he felt no compulsion to do anything in return for Jesus, he didn't give or serve Jesus the same way the woman did. His pride, his arrogance, his hard-heartedness, his hostility. He had a judgmental spirit. He had a slim understanding of what really defiles a person. He rejected sinners, what Jesus accepted the sinner. He was insensitive. And he had a complete misunderstanding of the nature of God's forgiveness. Talk about who's the great sinner here. Right? The point here, his heart attitude just completely prevented him from seeing it clearly. He just couldn't see it. Right? Moms, how many of you ever have a conversation with your kid that goes something like this? Go clean your room. Okay. You know, five minutes later, kid comes down. Room's clean. Mom goes in. What? Comes back. No, your room's not clean. This is out. This is out. This is out. Go clean your room. He goes back, cleans the room. Don't worry, Zach. I'm not going to call you out, but. Uh, <laughs> The mom comes out again, right? Oh, yeah, I mean, one of my kids, and the one who's probably most like me, I remember Kathy saying to me one time, she's like, does she just not see? And I'm like, you know, I, she doesn't. You know why I know that? Because she's me. And I, right, I mean, how many times? Did you, do you not see the socks on the floor? Like, uh, no, I missed that. <laughs> I didn't see it, you know. She laughs at me because, you know, we'll walk in my office and my books all have to be a certain way. And, like, the youth kids and my own kids over there have taken great joy going in there and they're, like, they like poking a book in, like, three inch by on the other one. So if I, like, walk in right away, I see that. She's like, how can you see that? Or walk in the weight room, right, You walk in the weight room and I, why do not people understand that you put the heavy plates on the bottom and the two and a half and five pounds on the top and I, it dry, I can walk and they're like, there's a 45 and a two and a half and a 10 and a 35. It makes me angry. Like, who does that? 
you know? And Kathy's like, oh, you, you can see stuff like that, but you can't see the socks on the floor. No, I don't see it, right? <laughs> Our kids, they don't, they don't see it. The room's not clean. Um, oh, it looks great, Mom. No, we don't see it. Don't see it. <laughs> Mike Burgess came up to me after. He's like, Craig, this two weeks in a row. I've gotten an elbow from my wife for something you said in a sermon. I'm done with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pharisee just didn't see it. Couldn't see it. Completely oblivious because of his self-righteousness. And even after the parable is over, he doesn't want to acknowledge the fact that he's just as big of a sinner as she is. His answer is completely lame. Well, I suppose the one, like, dude, <laughs> no, they're both equally sinner. They both did equally love, right? Doesn't see it. The point here, the parable is, is the key uh, to the whole narrative. It's the key to understanding the entire narrative. 500 denarii versus 50. The point is neither one of them could pay the debt. 500 denarii was probably a year and a half worth of wages. 50 denarii, a couple, days, uh, a couple months worth. But neither one could pay it. Simon judges rightly, right? Jesus then gets very direct with Simon. You don't love because you don't see your sin. This woman sees her sin. And because of that, she has a heart that's overflowing with gratefulness and gratitude. And I picture Jesus' words here being very actually gentle. And you notice the nuance in the text? He looks at the woman and he addresses Simon. He's talking to her. He's affirming her. He's propping her up. He's encouraging her. Why? Because Jesus loves sinners. Do you see this woman? Do you see this woman, Simon? I see her. I see her. She needed a kind word, and Jesus gives it. Why? Because he loves sinners. She's praised and built up. She, the broken one, is praised and built up. So what do we do with this? How do we apply this? If I understand God's grace, number one, I will embrace my sinfulness. Embrace your sinfulness. Right? Jeremiah 3.13, only acknowledge your guilt. Right? James, weep, mourn, take your sins seriously. Right, we live in a world and a culture where we're always got to talk to ourselves to make ourselves feel better. The ultimate goal is for me to feel better about myself, feel good about myself, right? It's healthy and good for me to acknowledge my guilt. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I'm a mess. I'm not going to live there, but I'm going to acknowledge that. Why? Because it magnifies my Savior. It makes me realize how great his grace is and how deeply I am loved. Martin Luther, in his work, uh, Bondage of the Will, writes this, God uh, has assuredly promised his grace to the humble, that is, to those who lament and despair of themselves. But no man can be thoroughly humbled until he knows that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, devices, endeavors, will, and works, and depends entirely on the choice, will, and work of another, namely of God alone. 
For as long as he is persuaded that he himself can do even the least thing toward his salvation, he retains some self-confidence and does not altogether despair of himself, and therefore he is not humbled before God, but presumes that there is, or at least hopes or desires that there may be, some place, time, and work for him by which he may at length attain to salvation. But when a man has no doubt that everything depends on the will of God, then he completely despairs of himself and chooses nothing for himself but waits for God to work. Then he has come to grace. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves. And we can always put up a good case for ourselves. Let yourself feel your guilt and your helplessness sometimes. Don't stay there and live under that. But let yourself feel the weight of that. Be quiet and listen. Don't pass it off or keep escaping. Now live by faith. I know that this is what I am. But I'm forgiven. I'm loved. I love the statement, the nuance in here. The Pharisee, if this man knew who she was, if he was a prophet, he would know who she is. He did know. That's the point. He did know what kind of woman she was. And he loved her and forgave her and canceled her debt. So embrace our sin. Be a seeker of Jesus. Be a seeker of Jesus, right? She sought Jesus out. She wanted to be with him, right? I remember when I was interested in Kathy, you know, and you guys, everyone, you all know how this, how this works, right? When I remember when I was interested in Kathy, and I remember being made fun of by uh, uh, Jim Cato. He was the music the team's director at Cedarville because I was, a, I was a team leader. So, and he said to me, he goes, Craig, I noticed something. And every time Kathy's team has practice, you're working in your office across the hall. I'm like, Jim, I'm just a hard worker. I'm trying to, I'm hard. He's like, yeah, I don't think so, right? You know how that is, right? You kind of know, and you kind of put yourself in the path of like, oh, right, Scott, you did this, right? You knew where Colleen was. I'm going to put my, I'm going to, right, on accident, right? No, I, I'm seeking her out. That's what the woman did with Jesus. Give sacrificially, right? Not just of our finances, but of ourselves, she gave sacrificially. I will be unguarded and reser- without reservation in my, my love and worship of God. I'll be unguarded. I love this here too because this woman wasn't in church. People in the world around her understood that she loved Christ. Man, my worship and expressions of gratitude to God are so powerful to an unsaved world. Worship in other places. In fact, she wasn't even in a neutral site. She was in hostile territory. She still was worshiping her God, right? I'll be unguarded. Um, I'll have humility before my Savior. I'll express gratitude. I'll have humility before my Savior. I'll get rid of the roots of uh, the, the tools of my trade. I don't need them anymore. I'll slam the door on my past. And you'll cease to be self righteous and judgmental of others because you'll be more aware of your own shortcomings. Be overwhelmed with gratitude. 
Your debts are canceled. This isn't about trying harder. I've got to try to do what this woman did. No. It's about response. It's about understanding what I am and who I am. And that'll flow. Now, there are times I don't feel saved. <laughs> I don't feel great about being a Christian. But, so there are times this is going to be a discipline. I'm going to exercise gratitude as a discipline. Man. I'll never forget. You had these moments as parents, right? You remember these snapshots of different things. And I'll never forget. Krista wanted an American Girl doll. Something that we were not going to buy her. And if anyone knows how much one of those things cost, you'll understand why we were never going to buy her an American Girl doll, right? But the grandparents wanted to do this. This is why grandparents are great. And the grandparents, so they asked us. And Krista wanted Josefina. She's a Mexican. She wanted Josefina. And that's, the, that's what she wanted. I want Josefina. I want Josefina. And uh, I'll never forget when Grandma and Grandpa got that for her. They wrapped it up. Krista was sitting on the piano bench in our living room. And I remember her opening that doll. And the face that she had will be forever etched on her daddy's mind. Complete joy. Smile. Like in awe. It was, it was amazing. You sat there as a parent and you're like, oh, this is cool. Man, every morning you wake up, brothers and sisters, you unwrap that grace, that pardon. And no matter what's going on in your life, you can look at that and be in awe. You say, man, look what God has done for me. I'm beloved. I'm the sinful woman, but I'm loved and forgiven. 